Hey, this is Taylor Gray, Ezra Bridger from Star Wars Rebels, and you are listening to the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. Taylor Gray and Ezra Bridger say out. Ezra, please, get out of there! I can't do that. Podcast is part of the Red 5 Network. For more Red 5 Network podcasts, visit red5network.com. There is more knowledge here than anywhere else in the galaxy. Only members of the Jedi Council are allowed access. Guarding the holocrons is one of the most important duties a Jedi can be given. Do you think you're up to the task? Welcome to another episode of the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. I'm your host, Rob, and we are recording this episode on Thursday, December 3rd, 2020. Now, before we get into this week's episode, I do want to take a quick moment to pass along a message from our sponsor, Chosen One Whiskey. Oh, I could use a Illusion Mangue's liquor. Yeah, I'm thinking of whiskey. Oh, good call. Hmm. Lots to choose from. Do you want a selection from the top shelf? Definitely. The Chosen One Whiskey, please. Why that one? Well, there was this battle. It's over, Anakin. I have the higher ambient temperature. You underestimate my proofing. You were the chosen one. It was said you'd destroy bad whiskeys, not join them. I'll barrel you. You were my distillery, Anakin. Wow. Okay. I guess instead of top shelf, it should be called the high ground. Yeah, no. Like any good scotch, it gets darker as it ages. Chosen one whiskey. All the body, none of the legs. All right, so we are back this week. Uh, Once again, myself and my good friend, co-host, and holiday cheermeister, Tom Howell. Tom, welcome back to the show. 
Well, I've I've gotten a little bit of an upgrade uh, from just uh, you know kind of an acolyte here in the Jedi Temple archives to now cheermeister. I like it. I have a title, but it's always good to be here in the Jedi Temple archives with you, Rob. You may not like the chair of cheer, but uh, you know <laughs> the chair of cheer. Uh, yeah, I've seen the chair of cheer. I that didn't look like it was my favorite thing, especially the eggnog part. I'm glad <laughs> I could do without. Thank you very much. Awesome. And actually, while we're on the topic of Christmas, uh, I would definitely recommend for anyone listening to the podcast that maybe picked it up after the holiday season last year and has not gone back to listen to a couple of the holiday episodes that we had done. Um, we do have uh, a fun episode on the Star Wars Holiday Special from December of 2019, as well as uh, the Star Wars Christmas album that a lot of people don't know is out there. Uh, but if you have visited Disney World around Christmas time, you may hear, uh, what do you buy a Wookiee for Christmas when he's already got a comb, which is a, uh, a classic off that album. So definitely go check those episodes out. I'm actually in uh, the middle of working on getting another Star Wars Holiday Special episode up this year uh, with myself and Tom and a gentleman named Gordon Smolder, who had reached out to us last year with uh, with his love of that particular holiday special. And I think he would bring some interesting uh, insight into you know his thoughts on that. So uh, looking forward to hopefully getting that set up for potentially even our next episode, if I can make that happen. <laughs> Especially good because we need somebody who actually has some love for the original <laughs> Star Wars holiday special, uh, you know, because I, I know that when we talked about it, we were not exactly glowing on our reports of it. Um, my only fear is now maybe I have to watch it again. Uh, do I really have to do that? Do I have to put myself through that for this episode? Or can I just let him go and then <laughs> just respond to it? You know you want to watch it, Tom. Come on. Do I? Do I? <laughs> I'm not so sure, but... You know, anything the Jedi Temple Archives podcast well, for the children. For the children, yes, especially during the holiday season. It's all about the yeah. children. Uh, that's why none of us have any money, but uh, yes. <laughs> they get everything they want. So, yeah, um, this week is going to be, I think, a lot of fun. Uh, as we did with the last episode, we're going to go back over these last couple episodes of The Mandalorian that we have not had a chance to talk about. Uh, and these were two of the... I would say standout episodes so far this season in a season where certainly with that first episode, uh, we got some really high level movie quality entertainment. Uh, but these last two, we finally start to dig into some of the things that have been set up throughout season one and the beginning of season two. And, uh, we really get to kind of see what's going on behind the curtains with Moff Gideon. And we finally get the on-screen character appearance of a longtime favorite character for I know both you and I from Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels in Ahsoka, uh, Ahsoka Tano uh, in the uh, chapter 13 episode. So I think we will go ahead and dive into those and uh, hopefully we can we can Im increase your appreciation and enjoyment of rewatching some of those episodes because uh, I don't think either of them are, uh, are episodes that you'd only want to see once. No, I, and there's so much detail work. Uh, I've watched them several times and still picked things out that I didn't notice necessarily the first time. Um, right now, I'm going back uh, down the rabbit hole with my wife, Michelle, on a certain character that is uh, within this uh, most recent episode of The Mandalorian, so we can explore that character a little bit more, uh, setting things up for what may be to come, whether it be within The Mandalorian itself or uh, something else entirely. Well, I'm sure we'll 
be discussing that as we go on through the day. Yeah, and I know that you were mentioning before we came on the air that uh, there's some good news on the on the Star Wars front, certainly on Disney Plus, with some news that's been released about uh, one of the shows that we've all been waiting for. If you want to go ahead and relay that to the listeners. Yeah, I didn't find this. Actually, this is from a, another podcast. I hope you don't mind if I mention there. Not at all. Uh, Tatooine Sons, who is also a very, it's a, it's a great Star Wars podcast, very positive, uh, excellent podcast. Uh, they found, it looked like a piece from, I, I think it was the uh, the National Film Institute or something along those, something very official, uh, showing that uh, Kenobi is actually in, not only in pre-production, but is actually set to start filming on January 4th of 2021. So it's coming up here in a month where we're going to start seeing some uh, some Kenobi action going on. That's very exciting as someone who is a a significant Obi-Wan Kenobi fan. I didn't know that about you, but uh, (laughs) Tom's worst kept secret, his uh, his love of Obi-Wan Kenobi. But, you know, I think that is one of the redeeming qualities uh, that we both felt existed within the prequel films was the performance of Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan Kenobi. He certainly really put a lot of time and effort and love into that character, even uh, working with a vocal coach to make sure that he was speaking uh, in the same cadence as Obi-Wan and, and basically coming off as close to uh, Alec Guinness's, Sir Alec Guinness's performance as he possibly could. So uh, really excited about this. He's been, he's been begging for this opportunity for quite some time. And uh, I think that it's only going to uh, serve to expand the universe to really get some insight into what happens in those years between uh, his banishment to Tatooine to kind of watch over young Luke Skywalker. And uh, when we see him reappear within episode four. Yeah, and um, I, I mean, I was at the D23 Expo last year when the announcement was finally made. And, uh, you, you know, it'd been a rumored about thing for many, for years, you know, months and years. And finally, when the announcement came, when you know, it looked like everything had wrapped up for the day during the Disney Plus showcase panel there, you know, and then, oh, you know, uh, we have one more thing. Kathleen Kennedy is out there on stage and out walked Ewan McGregor. And I, I remember I just lost. <laughs> I've gotten, I, I think I've told the story before on the show um, that I had forgotten about all the rumors going into that was a possibility. And so when he came out on stage at that, just him walking on stage confirmed it. And, you know, we've seen some things going back and forth over the last year plus as we've been leading up to finally uh it filming uh whether maybe it was not going to happen but now it looks like we're all go and that is very very exciting definitely uh and certainly i can understand where you're coming from i mean it's one thing to hear these rumors it's another thing for them to be ready to really bring that out and formally announce that they are going to make that kenobi series so looking forward to that getting shot hopefully we're going to get a lot more news and information about that as it's in production uh to kind of sate us until that that series makes it onto disney plus and uh i kind of hope that you know as they get these new series up and running that they stagger them with things like the mandalorian uh so that we get a little bit more consistent uh output of these star wars content or the star wars content kind 
kind of over the course of the year is instead of having it all jammed together. And I would assume that's what they're going to do, uh, potentially have the Mandalorian kind of take up that fall season and maybe Kenobi in the spring or over the, over the winter months. But, uh, we shall see what they end up doing. And, uh, I, I think no matter what, it's going to be some high quality entertainment and certainly something that's going to generate a lot of conversation, which is about what we're going to do here, uh, as we get into chapters 12 and 13 of the Mandalorian. So chapter 12, uh, titled the siege, which, uh, basically is Din Djarin having to deal with the, the fallout of his Mon Calamari repaired ship, the Razor Crest. I thought that the, uh, the beginning of that episode, when you've got, uh, the child basically in that little access hatch, trying to, uh, work on putting some of the connections back together. And, you know, Mando's sitting there having to basically call through this little access port, uh, to me that that read a lot like some of what we saw in guardians of the galaxy too with you know uh baby groot so uh, i i'm sure there was an element of that that was a callback to some of the marvel content that they've put out but uh you know certainly the child anyone with children can relate to what he was going through there trying to walk them through what should have been a fairly menial task yeah it was kind of a cross between uh empire strikes back and and uh, and Chewie and Han working on the Millennium Falcon uh, with uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume yeah. <laughs> Two uh, with Baby Groot with uh, with Rocket trying to teach Baby Groot or right. yeah Baby Groot and um, not quite getting the results he wanted and the same thing with with Din and and with uh, with Baby Yoda the child uh, we'll get to the net rest of it yeah certainly the whole the whole no 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 this goes here that goes there. Uh, and the child, once again, just constantly seems to, you know, when, when he, uh, wants to do something, he seems to catch on very quickly, but boy, he, uh, he's certainly making Din work for it in some of these yeah. scenes. So the outcome of this basically being that, uh, Mando is going to end up having to make a pit stop back on Navarro. One of the few places he knows he might have a chance to get the ship fixed, uh, in a way that's, that's really going to put him back on the map. Uh, meanwhile, we kind of cut to Navarro and we get a chance to see Gina Carano's character, uh, who's now been dubbed, I guess, the Marshal of Navarro, uh, cleaning out a den of aqualish thugs down in the old uh, covert where the Mandalorians had had previously resided and specifically within that chamber where the armor had set up shop. So uh, interesting to see how far that place had fallen just with the absence of the Mandalorians there. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, and you nailed it right off the bat. Like, oh, this is that area down in kind of the sewer area or whatever you want to call it, the underground area um, where they were. And you're like, oh, what's happened here? Why are these people or these characters taking over this realm? And then you see Cara Dune come in there and basically actually really lay down the law within, <laughs> literally within uh, that space. And then um, we find out that she's now the marshal of this town and things have changed a little bit in Navarro. I, I did think it was funny. They had the spot where the mythosaur skull had previously been on the wall and there was the, the clean spot where it had been removed and everything around it was filthy. And it always makes me think of blockbusters, right? Whenever they went out of business, there would just be blockbuster and filth up there after right. they take this, uh, you know, the, the clean spot and then surrounded by the filth where they had taken the sign down. So I got a little chuckle out of that. Um, also, you know, when, when Mando finally does make it to Navarro, uh, we have a, a few fun references there. So, you get to see uh, a, a Mimbanese. It's one of the 
the engineers basically that um, Grief Karga assigns to work on the ship. And, you know, this is a callback to uh, the planet Mimban where Han Solo was a mud trooper in Solo, a Star Wars story. Uh, so we kind of, we've seen these characters previously within Star Wars, uh, but, you know, it's always fun to, to get those callbacks to some of these remote planets that really don't get mentioned a whole lot. Um, and you get a chance to see what some of these aliens look like. Yeah, and what they kind of do best, a lot of them are put into the positions of what they kind of do on their own planet or what they've done throughout the galaxy uh, for many, many years, generations, millennium, whatever, you know. So it's kind of uh, cool to see them when when uh, something is called on then you need a character to come in that you reach for this species because that is what they do so well. Right. And then the other the other thing we get to see is, well, certainly Grief Karga's character has has really taken a liking to the child, uh, certainly saved his life, uh, the, the child that saved Grief Karga's life there in season one. So there's clearly a bond that's been formed between the two of them. It is kind of fun to see how Carl Weathers plays that up. And Carl Weathers did actually direct this episode, uh, which I believe is the first episode he has directed uh, within any of the Mandalorian series. So uh, I thought it was a, a great kind of like action action-packed, but some certain heavy-hitting points uh, that tie into some of what's been going on and, and are starting to fill in the blanks that have been created on the show. Um, he seemed to have a great time directing it uh, from a little bit of what I saw of, of his commentary afterwards. So, uh, you know, what what were your thoughts on, on the episode that he directed and, and kind of his twist on The Mandalorian? Well, I, I mean, I, it, he's was famous, you know, when he was probably at the top of his career for doing more of these kind of action adventure type films along with the Rocky films, of course. But, um, so this was right up his alley as I'm sure that's why he maybe even whether he approached Favreau and Filoni or whether they approached him, um, they said that this was the perfect, uh, um, you know, script for him and sure. they pulled it off really well. I, I did think it was funny. Like, uh, you know, I didn't know for sure what this episode was going to be. And, but the day before I saw a tweet from Carl, Weather, <laughs> you know, so thrilled to direct this episode. Oh, I guess we're going to get back to Navarro and see grief cargo. Right. Probably carry Dune as well. So at least I, I knew that going in. <laughs> But I thought it was great. It was a great episode, fun episode, action-packed episode. And not just that, there was a lot of um, stuff to move the story ahead uh, through it, which I'm sure we're about to get to. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's fun. We get introduced to some characters that we knew from season one. But but before we get into that, I think kind of one of the, the twists that this episode has was them walking into what had previously been the can cantina on Navarro, where we saw so many interactions between Mandalorian and Grief Karga and other bounty hunters and this has been turned into a school now um i know we've we've had some joking around with uh with pat and charles uh online from conversations because of the fact that uh as we had been joking previously uh we'd done some mock-ups of kind of c-3po teaching class and it was funny it was a very similar looking type of setup uh although i think at the time we had uh c-3po with a pumpkin spice latte and a pair of uggs on so he was he was teaching pace um <laughs> so that I, 
it was this, what that all comes from is um, Pat and Charles and Rob was supposed to uh, join us for that episode too, but unfortunately he had some things that uh, kept him from being able to air, come on that episode. Uh, so it's an episode of our, uh, my show, the Hyperion Adventures podcast that I do with my wife. We did a virtual uh, Star Wars celebration celebration, brought Pat and Charles on, and we decided what we were going to do is pitch new series uh, to Disney Plus, new Star Wars series at Disney Plus, and Pat in joking since Rob was not able to make it to that show, did a pitch for Rob of <laughs> a character called U3PO that would teach uh, basic, I believe it was, right. to uh, to various um, people to try and help them get jobs. And we're like, when we saw this, we're like, wait a minute, a Lucasfilm, a Filoni Favreau. I think you may have been listening to our episode a little bit. I think you owe us a little something. So if you're listening to this, uh, we still, you know, we'll take whatever you want. You know, if you want to come on either the Jedi Temple Archives podcast, the Conversations podcast, or the Hyperion Adventures podcast. All three, yeah. All of us together, that'd be fine. Or we would settle just for walk-ons onto season three of The Mandalorian, if that was, you know, if, if that's what it takes. So, you know, no lawyers need to come into play in this if you're happy to do that for us. Right. Uh, I think at a minimum, we'd be happy to to pitch uh, ideas for future episodes as well. Clearly, they're they're taking them anyway. So uh, very flattering that they're listening into Hyperion Adventures and and picking out uh, certain things that get brought up and turning them into into little sub. Uh, sections of these episodes but yeah we all got a great laugh uh, seeing a very c3po like droid uh, teaching this classroom full of of youngling students uh, the various information about you know galactic trade routes which uh, certainly that had to be one of their more exciting classes and I did I did take a few moments I did have to freeze the frame uh, just because you know, it was uh, there was a lot of, of movement and things blocking uh, the board there, but uh, the various Orabash on that board translated into gr- uh, gravitational vector, solar limit, orbital path, and key point. So uh, wow. I knew I would be remiss in not going through and uh, interpreting that. I am sure there were people wondering what it said uh, that just didn't want to take the time to go dig through it. So. Um, the other fun thing, uh, and we won't even get into the Macron incident, uh, which I know has been everywhere. And by the way, if you want to go find those, you can get 12 of them for $49 plus tax at William Sonoma. Um, so, you know, sell up internal organ maybe um (laughs) apparently they think that's going to be a very popular gift around the christmas holiday sure who doesn't want one of those (laughs) right right so uh you know we we now know the child doesn't just eat people's offspring he will go for the occasional macaron yeah yeah. Uh, matter of fact, I think we we purchased a few here <laughs> for our little our own little child that we have here in in the household. So um, right after that, that was I mean I was thinking about because I also do the Disney Dishes blog. Maybe I need to start creating some uh, macarons before that. Uh, maybe just to, to fit in with the episode, but. I've never been that great with doing that, so I never got around to it. But we'll see. Maybe in the future, maybe right. I'll give it a shot. By all accounts, they're an art form unto themselves. So we we do get uh, as they leave the child in the classroom and kind of go off into Grief Karga's office in this episode. We do get the reappearance of our Mithral friend uh, from the very first episode of The Mandalorian. And I thought it was funny because I don't know uh, that a lot of people caught this, but as they're walking in, he's basically diming mando out to the new republic so that's what he's on the comm doing he's basically calling in the razor crest 
Are you, yeah, I mean, I've, are, I, I, that would be my assumption too. And that right. was my assumption, but could he be calling him out to somebody else? Um, there's obviously somebody tied in, you know, that's uh, a mole within the system there. Is he a mole as well? I don't know. My thought is still that yeah. it was the New Republic, but eh, we'll have to wait and see on that. Yeah, I, I basically read it as New Republic just because that uh, essentially is what brought Captain Carson Teva, who is uh, the X-Wing pilot that we had seen a few episodes ago, uh, along with Dave Filoni that came and rescued Mando on that ice planet where the uh, the spiders had basically attacked the ship. So uh, he's another another character that, you know, as we know, um, John Favreau is incredibly loyal to people that he has worked with in the past. Uh, Amy Sedaris, who we've seen in a few episodes, uh, famously known for being the secretary of, uh, of Buddy the Elf's father in uh, the movie Elf. So my wife wanted to make sure that I brought that up. Yeah. <laughs> she being a, being a huge fan holiday of Elf. Season, we should. Yeah. Right, right. It is uh, definitely the holiday season. But, um, you know, Mithra, the, the Mithral, as soon as he sees Mando walk in, uh, he admits that whatever, the mist from his glands, which was a great effect. Uh, right. And we find out that, that uh, fortunately for him, Grief Karga has thawed him out to allow him to work off his debt. We find out that the reason he was on uh, the hit list or the the bounty list previously was he had basically done some what was it called uh, creative bookkeeping yeah creative <laughs> nice. bookkeeping I've seen that there are uh, many people on Wall Street who have found themselves uh, you know locked away for creative bookkeeping and it looked <laughs> like he was something very similar in that regard I did find it funny later when his speeder gets crushed I my first thought was was this bought with said illegal proceeds. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't think about that. Right, it's a good point. Right, it's a good point. He was very protective of that speeder for sure. Very, and so you know, basically, they end up laying out the uh, the key mission for this particular episode, which is this supposedly uh, skeleton staffed imperial base, kind of on the outskirts of the city, where uh, Grief Cargo wanted to clear it out and ensure that they didn't have any quote unquote imperial entanglements to deal with in the future. And you know, of course, Mando was all in if that was going to be uh, the trade. For for his repairs on his ship. Uh, and so we end up with this, uh, this, it's not really a heist, but it was definitely uh, kind of an action sub quest for the Mandalorian, uh, along with grief, Karga, Cara Dune and, uh, our fledgling Mithral friend. I thought it read, and I, I thought it read very much like a heist film in, uh, that was what first called out to me. I mean, yeah, I can see what you're talking about where it's not specifically a heist film, but I definitely think that kind of, that was what it was alluded to as Certainly. this went on, you know, trying to sneak into this, um, you know, whatever is, it could be a bank, it could be a palace, it could be, you know, but it was this base and, uh, trying to, you know, weed out what was in there whether mm -hmm. it be you know taking something from it or just weeding out the imperials within it yeah i mean it certainly they i, I don't think they thought there was going to be quote necessarily anything of value there i mean they figured if there was then potentially they could make a little profit selling it on the black market but uh it was more really just to clean it out i would certainly say it ended up far more like a heist because of what they found there uh which the first thing uh well before we even get into their first discovery there i did love the fact that uh, as they got there and kind of started clearing out some of the troops and finally made it into the reactor room uh, where they were going to 
take off the containment on the lava that was essentially heating the base, uh, they have the Mithril kind of go out on the platform to deactivate the safeguards. And of course, his first comment is, hey, there's no handrails. <laughs> yeah, I know. That cracked me up too. Uh, why does the Empire hate handrails or guardrails? What is going on there? I know they spend all, I guess they're just spending all this money on these giant weapons and these giant ships where you can't spend an extra $100 to get a guardrail right. on the side or whatever. But I also, you know, looking at the base, one thing I wanted to bring up is that it called out to me uh, some bases that we've seen uh, within the Star Wars universe before. I mean, I think it looks very similar uh, to the one that um, Galen Erso yes. and his crew of engineers are in. Yes. Uh, it looks just like that. And if you've uh, played uh, Jedi Fallen Order, mm-hmm. uh, there's a base that's very similar that you also will go into on that. So it's pretty much a standard Imperial base that you see carved into the kind of the sides of these cliff walls yeah. in various planets. I seem to recall, I think it was Dark Forces, one of the really early video games uh, that they had done. There was a base that was very similar to that, kind of carved into the side of a cliff um, with that you know narrow walkway. It's it's interesting. You see uh, as they get up to the the main platform that you're talking about outside the front of the base. You know, Cara Dune walks right to the edge and is kind of peering down into the ravine. Um, clearly, she's not worried about the handrails so much. But uh, yeah, I think they're definitely a walking OSHA violation. Uh, <laughs> certainly, uh, that was probably the first thing Palpatine did with the Empire was to uh, to get rid of OSHA and make sure that he didn't have to deal with those type of issues to get his bases approved. That was that was right after the Jedi Temple. Right over. Now we're getting rid of that next. All right. <laughs> And then we're gonna then we're gonna get rid of the Senate. After that, we're good. Yeah. yeah. And and uh, again, I, I don't know. It sounds like they've actually already gone back in and uh, covered up the man in jeans. But it uh, it was pretty funny there, right when the episode had initially got released during one of the scenes where they're kind of charging out uh, of one of the side corridors. Unfortunately, they had a, a member of the the support team, I guess it was back there who had not quite, um, gotten himself out of the shot. And, uh, so that I've seen, I've seen cardboard cutouts for action figures created for this guy. Uh, he's, he's clearly, uh, got his own level of fame built up. Oh, I was, I wish they hadn't taken it out. I know. It was there, you know, whatever. You don't need to take it out. I mean, we understand how these things are shot. And sometimes continuity may not pick these things up. And I thought it was great. All the stuff that came out on social media, all the memes and all this stuff. It was just the best. Jeans guy. Love jeans guy. Honestly, in 2020, I'll take anything that gives us a laugh at this point. So, right. Jeans yeah. guy needs to show up on Wikipedia somewhere. I <laughs> right. You know? I just want the action figure. So, um, right. I do think it should come out after Dominic Pace's action figure. I'm still on the on the hunt for a gecko action figure, but uh, we'll keep our eyes, eyes peeled for that. Uh, so this really leads to the first big reveal of this episode, which is this cloning facility, uh, which is what this base really is, where we have Dr. Pershing from the initial episode uh, via hollow kind of giving us a little background on this, on this facility and the fact that it is literally uh, being used to try to figure out how they could take that blood that was extracted from the child, uh, which had a high M count, which I think gave a lot of star Wars fans a chuckle. It was, it was uh, telling, that they stayed clear of using the the M word that's really behind that highly controversial yeah. midi chlorians. 
Right. Uh, alluding to it for the first time is, since the uh, prequel trilogy, but without really using the full word so you didn't have to get into that whole debate, uh, <laughs> which is still rages out there on what, you know, the importance of midichlorians. Right. Um, and, you know, we get to see these cloning cylinders and, and it's interesting to me because certainly we know cloning was a big part of the prequels um there was a lot of talk in the uh in star wars legends uh the expanded universe uh, as it was called back then where they were not only trying to uh figure out how to clone but how to clone jedi specifically um and there was a lot of uh a lot of discussion around how that would happen basically what would typically happen if you tried to clone any force sensitive uh was what they is that they would go insane so clearly in in the new canon what we're dealing with is trying to clone anybody and to infuse this force sensitive blood into them uh would just create a situation where they would be i believe he used the term non-viable <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah that's a, that's a good term for just a little right. off right a little off yeah so yeah we had uh we had some kind of ill-formed uh figures floating in the vats one of them i know a lot of people have likened quite a bit to uh to an early snoke perhaps looked uh that was my first call to it i'm like wow that looks like uh if you go to the rise of skywalker and some of the um what are they back to tanks or whatever yeah, they the are vat of the vat of snokes <laughs> yes i are like that looks pretty similar to it not quite there but you could see a, a vague shape around it whether it was or whether it wasn't i it wouldn't shock me if that was what they're at least alluding to um you know in that whether it actually was snoke but they wanted you to at least think that way yeah, uh, I do think it's interesting. This is another area where it's kind of caused um, some conflict, I guess, amongst the Star Wars fandom. There's there's certain fans that want to keep Mando away from the sequel trilogy and kind of not tie it too closely together. I can understand that, um, but I also understand you know why they would why they'd want to be kind of laying in some of this backstory. Uh, it didn't really bother me that much personally. I'm guessing it didn't bother you uh, too much within the story that was being told. No, and, and we already know that there there's a reason why they're trying to get the child so much, why they're going after him so hard. Then they need to explain why. I mean, they, you can't just say, oh, you know, because he's out there. No, there needs to be some sort of backstory as to the reason why they're looking for the child uh, so much up to this point. And, um, you know, we found out a little bit more of it right there. And I'm sure there's some more story yet to come, but that's, that's a good chunk of it. It's all tying together. Yeah, uh, I will say that, uh, you know, kind of as they end up escaping the base, as it uh, as it self destructs, um, in the kind of a, it's a it's an offshoot of one of those troop transports that we've seen earlier in the seasons. Uh, but uh, the driving job done by Gina Carano, basically uh, just taking this thing and running it right off the cliff into the ravine. Uh, there were some great still shots of the three of them in the cockpit of that thing. And uh, the look on, on Carl Weathers' face uh, just basically says it all. He, he definitely comes off as purely terrified. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would be too. You're going to dive off this cliff. We're just going to grow. Okay. I mean, did you see what happened to the, the speeder bikes that right. followed behind? A couple <laughs> of them didn't, didn't like it very much. I mean, luckily they were in this giant transport. They maybe weathered that fall a little bit more, but 
If I was diving off that thing, I'd be like, okay, we're not making it. <laughs> I would be very afraid. But, well, I, uh, yeah, I would say that I think it's uh, pretty clear that you don't ever want to try to pass Gina Carano on the highway because uh, she rubbed out the, the scout bike trooper without any issue whatsoever. Yeah, don't cut her off, whatever right. you do. Right. <laughs> but uh, as we get back, as we get back to kind of their home base there on Navarro, uh, we do get that interlude where after Mando has left um, in the crest, which has been fully repaired, and we get, uh, ca- you know, Captain Carson Tiva coming around looking for Mandalorian and the Razor Crest. Uh, you know, Grief Karga kind of. You know, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I never said he was here. Uh, yeah. Blows him off. I, I do feel for New Republic pilots having to work the outer rim. Uh, again, another thing that has not been talked about a whole lot within uh, any of the canon books. But you know that they were sitting out there trying to police a, a very unruly section of the galaxy. And it had to be a thankless job. No one out there wants to work with them. No, they're spread very thinly at that point. I mean, we're not talking about the the, the center systems, you know. The, you know, we, to get all the way out there, everybody is going to spread out in this spider web. So there's only going to be few members that get out that far. So it's not like they get visited every week. And you also don't want to be heavy-handed. I mean, that's what they everybody who's been out there has already gone through is this giant heavy-handed over the entire galaxy. So yeah, they're always trying to kind of play that balancing game of you know making. Sure, things are good, making sure everything's safe, making sure that there's some sort of police action going on out there without it being seeming like it's this, you know, giant, we're just taking over everything. We're just the the next version of the empire. Right. Uh, The other, you know, obviously we find out at this point that the Memonese engineer that had helped repair the Razor Crest through a communication between him and a member of Gideon's staff, uh, basically they've planted a tracking beacon on the Razor Crest. So they have not had that play out into anything yet i do think it's interesting we'll talk about it a little bit when we get to the next episode uh about you know some of the danger that's going to put some other characters that we meet in and certainly uh with what's going to be coming beyond chapter 13 uh there's going to be even higher stakes it's just a question of time until moff gideon ends up tracking down mando uh and especially the child but the other super cool uh drop right at the end of this episode was when we do see moff gideon in uh, getting the news that that the homing beacon had been placed aboard the Razor Crest. He is in this dark chamber, uh, some red accent lighting, and what I believe are uh, dark troopers, uh, which are something that, again, that has been pulled out of old Star Wars content, um, expanded universe content. These look like they're the phase three dark troopers, which are very samurai-like and and incredibly dangerous. Uh, I think it's going to be super interesting to see how they work those into the season as well. Yeah, I actually don't know a lot about the Dark Troopers, so you may want to expand on it more. If you, I don't know if you want to get into it much more. It's not uh, some of the expanded universe that I got into, so you yeah, may know a little. Yeah, a lot, lot of it came out. A lot of it came out of some of the the video games. It was just a, a uh, essentially a, a battle exoskeleton uh, that 
could be used for stormtroopers and it basically had a lot of advanced weaponry and created a scenario where you would have not invincible but highly impregnable uh troopers within there and and they were very difficult to to kill i know that in talking to some other folks uh pat and charles from conversations they were talking about some of the hoses that looked like they were coming off of some of these troopers these did not look to me as much like a, a battle exoskeleton it looked like it could be a combination of possibly uh you know pure mechanic maybe with some cyborg um components to them so you know they could be placing some organ components within these uh droids to help drive them uh but they came off far more like like a battle droid to me um but they definitely seem very much stylized off of uh some of the dark trooper concepts See, and that was my thought to begin with until I saw a lot of people mention the, the Dark Troopers. Right. And I'm like, okay, I don't know much about them. But my first impression was that these were some sort of battle droids, which would totally tie back into what we've seen from Mando so far in the story. Hating droids to begin with, now kind of accepting them and being fine with droids. And now he's going to be running into possibly these army of whether it be, you know, partial cyborgs or completely some sort of um, newfangled battle droid. Right. Um, yeah, I, 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 again, interesting to see where we go. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a very dark room. It's, it's hard to pick out a lot of detail, but uh, that's exactly where my mind went right from the beginning. I've seen a number of other people who uh, essentially, you know, were thinking the same type of thing. Um, and uh, you know, this, this would be very interesting. Certainly the one thing, as I mentioned earlier about the, the phase three dark troopers is they are very samurai like, and as we're going to get into a little bit, um, with our conversation about chapter 13, um, which honestly, uh, well, there's one other point I want to make about, about that particular scene in the, in the, uh, the Mandalorian chapter 12, which was that the logo on the backs of the, the texts that are working on these various, uh, creations are from the Imperial department of military research. So that is again, another callback to the expanded universe. Um, they were the ones that had created the initial death stars and some of the other super weapons that you came across within the expanded universe. So it's another call back to some of that legends content, uh, kind of bringing it forward and, and putting it back into Canon in a very appropriate way. Uh, so if you see these guys building something, it's probably not something you want to run into in a dark alley. No, no. Some of those things that were, uh, within legends, within the expanded universe, some of those, um, you thought the death star was uh, pretty nasty. No, some of these weapons and other things they were creating out there were pretty bad on their own right for sure absolutely so uh you know by the time we get to the end of this episode mandalorian uh chapter 12 he finally has got his ship back in in good working order he's finally going to be able to continue on with the quest that he was given uh both by the armor and which was uh you know the the original quest but also the additional information that he was given from bokatan on where he could go track down ahsoka tano and uh you know this is going to be uh, ahsoka showing up in a live action star wars content of any kind it's going to be one of those things that i i know personally it was going to kind of pull at my heartstrings a little bit having grown up with ahsoka 
through watching the Clone Wars, through watching Star Wars Rebels, that character was so much uh, brought to life by Ashley Eckstein and her portrayal of Ahsoka. And yet I completely understood why they were casting Rosario Dawson as Ahsoka. When you see her face and and, and older Ahsoka, um, there is a very similar look there. So, you know, certainly Rosario Dawson had her hands full bringing this character to life within chapter 13 and before we even get into the details i will say i think she did an excellent job i I thought she was fantastic um yeah ashley Eckstein. i mean ashley Eckstein is ahsoka tano you know let's just start right there she has been ahsoka tano for so long she created the character she went through the tough times with that character where it wasn't exactly beloved within the Star Wars community. Right. Um, there was a lot of call-outs that this is one of the worst characters in Star Wars history at some points. Whether the storm brought the character, you know, brought it to, you know, developed it, made it into this very much beloved. I mean, I, it, right up there, In I, I went out and just a few weeks ago did a just top three. I put a tweet out there. Top three Star Wars characters, go. Yeah. And Ahsoka Tano ended up on a lot of those lists over people like Han Solo mm-hmm. or Luke Skywalker or Princess Leia Organa. Um, Ahsoka Tano is a fan favorite for those who have watched the Clone Wars, yes, but even a little bit of you know Star Wars Rebels. And now to finally see it in the fle- see her in the flesh and Rosario Dawson. I mean, she you know went credit to her as well. She completely thanked Ashley for you know you know leading into this role for developing this character for making her to be so fleshed out and that she was honored to be able to take on this role and she played it off perfectly in 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 my opinion anyway yeah I, I completely agree and I do think you're right I think that the thing that makes Ahsoka such a great character is we do get to see her full arc we get to see her come on the scene very young um, from a fan perspective very heavily criticized and not only win over Star Wars fans but we I would say Clone Wars is as much about Ahsoka as it is about any other character we see her almost every episode and we see her growth and and her kind of rounding into uh, not only someone who was uh, on the path to become one of the greatest Jedi ever, but someone who ended up with the strength to be able to walk away from the Jedi Order at a time when that would have been hard for, I think, any Jedi. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, it was questionable as you went through most of the Clone Wars. You'd definitely say that she was... It was either Anakin or her This that this story was all about, that the Clone Wars was all about. But once you got to season seven and you saw the wrap-up of it in those last three, four episodes, um, even the few episodes before that, but um, really, I mean, it, it is her story. The Clone Wars is her story within, you know, the storytelling of uh, Anakin, within the storytelling of Obi-Wan and what they went through during this period and how that progressed and um, how we saw the rise and fall of Anakin within it. Um, and a good portion of the reasoning for that is because of Ahsoka being there and basically being the, as she was, you know, she was this great character, but she was also the audience's eyes into how this all progressed and, and filling in the, a lot of the blanks that we did not get out of the, the, the 
the prequel films, essentially. Right. So, you know, as we get into chapter 13 a little bit, Mandalorian finally makes his way to the planet of Corvus, uh, ends up getting to the location where he was told to go in order to find Ahsoka. Um, even prior to this, we do get a little introduction to Ahsoka. I was a little surprised. We get an introduction to her really right off the top of the episode, uh, taking out some troops that had been placed outside the city walls to hunt her down uh, and basically coming right up to those city walls where we find the magistrate who was actually played by Bruce Lee's granddaughter, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, certainly she had the martial arts skills to, to back that up as we find out later in this episode as well. Uh, and as well as uh, Michael Bean playing uh, the character uh, Lang. Lang. That's correct. So, you know, I, I didn't even recognize Michael Bean, who a lot of people would know from the first Terminator movie or from Aliens. Um, he certainly was a household uh, name for a while, being in a, a number of big movies kind of fairly in short succession and then disappearing, really. Yeah, I I, would, I knew he looked familiar and I couldn't pinpoint it as I was watching, but then I did a little research on him. And uh, yeah, he was in a lot of stuff back in, you know, in around the 80s and, and everything in the early 90s and uh, just kind of drifted off. But he played very interesting character, not, you know, didn't speak a lot of lines, but you, you can just kind of sense his presence there whenever he was on screen for sure. Right. And I will say the other thing that really jumped out at the top of this episode is the huge samurai film underpinnings that, you know, go back to those Kurosawa films, uh, not just kind of the stylization of some of the buildings and, you know, that giant gong-like bell that they were uh, banging on to, to warn the city that Ahsoka was coming close, but the magistrate herself comes off uh, as very very much, you know, uh, uh, one of the evil despots from one of these samurai films, the way that they had laid out the city where everyone is suffering. Uh, and then you go inside the the gates of the quote unquote palace where the magistrate was staying and you get these lush gardens and uh, the whole thing. I mean, clearly, once again, if, and we've talked about this so many times within the Mandalorian alone, the nods back to the gunslinger uh, roots as well as the samurai roots of the Mandalorian and Star Wars overall. Yeah, I mean, uh, this was, we talked about uh, the first episode of season two uh, going back, and that was just complete, real American, well, actually more um, spaghetti Western, but right. What you know from a Western Clint Eastwood, everything that delved into it, this was completely Kurosawa, you know, and it was completely that kind of samurai Western. And there was no questioning it. As soon as you saw the settings, as soon as you saw how the characters squared off against one another, uh, this was a complete samurai Western um, top to bottom. Yeah, I will say that, you know, when, when Bo-Katan initially talked about the planet, the forest planet of Corvus, uh, you know, when we finally get to see Corvus, it does not look much like a forest planet. They've clearly burned down a lot of the area around the town. I know that, you know, if you look back at, uh, you know, ancient uh, warfare, typically they would do that uh, to clear out cover for attacking forces. And uh, it definitely looks like the area around this town may have been scorched to help them deal with uh, their Ahsoka Tano situation, uh, perhaps, but they don't really get into where that scorching comes from. Certainly, as as uh, we meet Ahsoka later, we do see some greener, more
more lush portions of the planet. But getting back to the Mandalorian arriving on the planet, you know, making his way into the city, kind of seeing the the downtrodden populace. Uh, I know that uh, the first major character that that we see him interface with is the gentleman who later on is is going to kind of be the hero of the uprising. But he is a, a famous Disney uh, Imagineer as well. So talk talk about some homage to uh, some Disney greats. Yeah, uh, Disney legend uh, Wing T. Chow. Absolutely. Uh, basically, the, the the man who uh, designed the Disney cruise ships, among other things, but uh, the magic and the the wonder, and then also helped on with the fantasy and the dream, but also was involved in many other aspects uh, within Disney and. Um, became a Disney legend in 2019. It wouldn't be surprised because Favreau, Filoni, the whole group were there at uh, D23 Expo in 2019. Uh, if they ran into him at some point, because uh, um, Favreau uh, was a, made a legend uh, during that same time that Wing Chow was made a Disney legend. It wouldn't be surprised if they're at some sort of cocktail reception or whatever, and they talked with one another and said, hey, you know, you want to join us for an episode? And we yeah. like, yeah, I'm in. Let's do it. So, yeah, it right. was. I mean, again, this is another example of just some of the really cool Easter eggs that they hide within some of these episodes right in plain sight. Um, maybe not someone, you know, certainly Disney fans are going to be familiar with Wing T. Chow, but not, you know, the not a lot of the casual viewers. And I kind of wanted to, to serve that up to you as a softball. I knew of his involvement with the Disney cruise ships. And I know that, uh, you know, if you've got questions about Disney Cruise Line, Tom and his wife, Michelle, are, uh, are experts they uh, they have slaved away thanklessly by going on many many cruises uh in order to uh, to be able to come back and tell people exactly how you do a disney cruise that's right we do it for you we do it for the children right. um we have two more cruises booked for 2021 hopefully yeah <laughs> so yeah when we get to uh you know mando finally meeting up with lang and the magistrate and i thought it was funny in that initial uh conversation where she asked him you know are you active or are you part of the guild and he kind of you know well last i checked right <laughs> right yeah. uh, I, I don't know am i but uh, last i knew sure Whatever. yeah we're gonna go with that so yeah and uh and of course you know she gives him the the bounty of tracking down and eliminating ahsoka tano uh and of course he says that he's very expensive and her offer to Dijarin uh for fulfilling this particular bounty is a staff of pure baskar which is actually a spear um which I think, you know, the first thing that came to mind there was now now we've finally got something in play where Mando potentially would have a chance to stand up in a battle against uh, Moff Gideon and the Darksaber. Mando or maybe Bo-Katan. Perhaps I mean, Bo-Katan. Uh, and we know Bo-Katan is also looking for the Darksaber and um, probably looking for Moff Gideon with it. So um, maybe Man- whether it be Mando battling Moff Gideon with the Darksaber or whether he lends it over to or hands it over to Bo-Katan um, to aid in the fight, mm-hmm. we'll see. But uh, definitely, you're, you're, you're right. When you brought yeah. that up, I'm like, oh, yeah. 
totally that that is that weapon they need yeah it, interestingly enough you know when we, when we talk about Volkatan, and this actually goes back to a little bit of something we saw in chapter 12 which was after they had attempted to fix the razor crest and they were kind of sitting there uh having a little cup of bone broth and we see mando lifting his helmet and drinking uh some of this broth alongside the child and and you know the child's trying to look up under the visor uh you know that alone just after his brief interlude with Bo-Katan and finding out that what he had grown up on as the way may not be the only way uh and that and that his cast of Mandalorians may not be the the true Mandalorians per se uh that to me was kind of the beginning signs of some of the cracks and in, in what he thought of as his code certainly not taking his helmet all the way off but exposing more of his face than I would have expected him to based on how he has looked at removing his helmet up until this point. It's a good point. It's something we've been bringing up since last year. You know, the fact that, uh, you know, Hey, when we always saw Mandalorians, they were taking their helmets off right and left, you know? So, uh, definitely. And, and, it, we also mentioned it uh, the last time we were talking about uh, the first three episodes of this season that, uh, you know, how he knew right away that uh, that Cobb Vanth was was not a Mandalorian by the fact that he took off his helmet right away. And then he suspected that of Bo-Katan <laughs> and the rest of the Night Owls there when they took their helmets off as well. Because and so learning that this is a, a thing that's OK Again, like you were bringing up, Rob may change his point of view a little bit. Right. We'll have to see. I'm I'm hopeful that uh, that he ends up more on the side of the night owls than uh, than the cast or the the children of the watch, uh, the group that he is a part of. But we shall see where they go with that. Um, I think again, I think they have a lot to cover in this season, uh, and certainly this episode. You know, the fact that he's given this bounty to go out uh, to set a coordinates and find Ahsoka and do away with her, uh, which you know, again you got the magistrate assuming that he's actually taking on this bounty when he never says that he accepts. Uh, and certainly I think that would have gone against his code to accept that, that task and then feel like he would have to fulfill it, uh, would have created a big problem for him. But, uh, one of the things that I know we both noticed as he was making his way out to that location is as he's getting very close, uh, kind of in the upper left corner of the screen, you catch a glimpse of what looks probably to a lot of viewers like an owl, but I think we know this is a convor um, and this ties back to the mortis uh, arc within the clone wars i know tom and i'll get into that in a minute about that uh, but this particular convor is called morai and was associated with uh, a force being within that mortis arc called the daughter uh, and it was actually the daughter whose life force was infused into ahsoka to essentially bring her back from death in that arc within clone wars so this this is a creature that we see following Ahsoka around in all of in the in the remainder of uh, a number of episodes of Clone Wars, certainly much more heavily within Rebels, um, and now we're starting to see that appear in the live action series as well. So it's cool that they're carrying that forward. Right. And I think you were like me. You were looking for it immediately when, you know, Ahsoka Tano is around because very often, not always, but very often when Ahsoka Tano is around, this Morai is often be found flying around or perched somewhere nearby. And so when he's walking through that forest, I, I, w- I had my eyes looking up for him and 
uh, picked it out right away, immediately. Yeah. I'm like, there it is. There's the Mori. Ahsoka's very nearby. Uh, it, it, so if, if you're looking for it, it, it just basically looks like an owl in a tree, and you may not have noticed it if you weren't closely watching or knew to look for it. But if you go back and watch the episode, uh, you can spot it right away. And once you see it, you'll see it every time Ahsoka's around or every time it's around when Ahsoka's around anyway. And you'll be on the look for it for sure. Yeah, and we'll, we certainly got a chance to see uh, that that same convoy more I uh, within season seven of the Clone Wars, uh, especially that final shot with Vader uh, looking down at Ahsoka's lightsaber in his hand and and more I was circling high overhead. So um, it kind of raises the question of was she around or in close proximity when Vader was there on that planet, which I wouldn't expect her to be. But uh, as we said, you know, it's that's something we always see in proximity to her. Um, and to give people a little bit of background on that Mortis arc, I don't think we need to go over everything that happens there, but at a very high level, this is an arc within Clone Wars where uh, the Jedi receive a 2,000-year-old distress call, um, which is, you know, it's again, it's using a code that the Jedi had not used for a couple thousand years. Uh, Anakin, Obi-Wan, and Ahsoka are sent out to investigate, and when they reach those coordinates, they find this, uh, I won't call it a planet, uh, it's it's a polygonal Looks world. Like a, a strange straight shaped ship. Yeah. A very large strange shaped ship. It's yeah. a sixteen sided Dungeons and Dragons die. Uh, <laughs> exactly. It's basically yeah. what it looks like. Uh, called Mortis, and this is basically a vergence in the Force. I guess they would call it, uh, where the Force was incredibly powerful. It was populated by the Father, who created the balance between his son, who was a representative of essentially the dark side of the Force, and his daughter, who was a representative of the light side. So, uh, Ahsoka actually ends up getting infected with the dark side uh, later dying at the hands of the son and the, and the daughter then gives her life force uh, basically using Anakin as a conduit to transfer her life force into Ahsoka so uh, when we see Ahsoka now within this live action film and certainly she bears this out quite a bit within Rebels as well but I would say at this point she's really kind of the, the purest expression of the light side of the force she's not Jedi, uh, but she very much embodies those attributes that we see within the daughter, the selflessness, the desire to give of herself for what is right and to, to fight for the forces of light in the universe. Yeah, I think it was in that Vanity Fair interview that I, and I can't remember who said it, if it was Filoni or whether it was Rosario Dawson, but they basically called her the best of us. Um, and I think that pretty much sums up uh, Sokotano within the Force wielders. You know, whether you want to call her a Jedi or not, um, you know, she is the, the best of us in in so many uh, ways. And um, and I think it's expressed very well what we saw here, what we see in the Clone Wars, what we see in Rebels. Um, she is, and we've talked about it before on your show, that so many times I would like to see, you know, the new form of, you know, if there are a new school of Jedi or whatever they want to call them, that uh, basically her teachings, the basically her ways are what is used as the blueprint for how to go forward with them, you know, that it's okay to have some attachments, although that was an interesting thing that came out in this uh, episode, which we'll talk about. Right. It's okay to, you know, feel things. It's okay to use aggression occasionally, it's, as long as you still fall on the light side of the force. Um, it's, it, it is the way that these these characters should be. Also, her looking out for the little people as right. opposed to 
the Jedi who became so political, mostly fought watching, you know, whether it be, you know, the chancellor or some of the key members of the Republic, uh, instead of, you know, checking out on all these people that are suffering at the, you know, and not being realized uh, uh, throughout the galaxy. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly the problem with the Jedi, uh, to go on a little bit of a tangent, the problem with the Jedi aligning themselves with the Republic uh, ultimately came out to be that because they allowed themselves to be a military force for a political power, politicians aren't necessarily about doing what's right. They're about what's doing right by whatever portion of the population they feel is going to give them advantage. And so, you know, you end up in scenarios where Jedi were basically told to do something that maybe went against what they should have been doing or to not help out in places where they should have been helping out. Uh, and, and it really pulled them away from some of the things that were tr truly the core of their attachment to the light side of the force. And Ahsoka does a very good job of separating herself from that. Um, right. She become the, the Jedi have become really kind of an elitist group, you know, essentially they're there to help out the government. They're there to help out uh, some of the key members of these worlds but very often they're not helping the little moisture farmer out there or uh, somebody who is, you know, deep within Coruscant that is struggling to get by. And, um, and so, again, are they helping to promote things and help keep things safe throughout the galaxy? Sure. But most people, eh, you know, Jedi, what, what good are they doing me? Yeah. Uh, so uh, as we were basically leading up to Ahsoka makes her appearance in stunning fashion, uh, basically coming out of nowhere to attack Mando. She, you know, she certainly doesn't know him from any other Mandalorian. She's going to be familiar with who and what Mandalorians are, uh, based on her experiences previously. But, uh, you know, she knows that she's hunted by the people of this town and, and assumes that he is out there to track her down and do away with her. Uh, and we find out very quickly that, uh, Beskar, which I've done episodes, uh, about lightsabers on this show and, and talked about Beskar, which up until this point had always been talked about as being able to deflect glancing blows from a lightsaber. But we see in this episode, without a doubt, uh, pure Beskar can absolutely hold up to direct strikes uh, from not one, but two lightsabers at the same time, um, which basically keep Mando from being slap chopping into little pieces uh, by Ahsoka. Before he has even a chance to identify himself. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I'm a friend. I'm here to see you. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was interesting, too. I had no idea uh, up until that point that Beskar could uh, I'd like deflect a glancing blow of a lightsaber. Yeah. Of course, sure. But directly, that was pretty amazing. Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, fortunately, she finds out uh, that, that he is just there to talk specifically about the child uh, who she recognizes very quickly. Uh, and we finally get someone introduced on this show who can tell him something about this child that he has been protecting for so long uh and not just a little bit of information we get uh as thorough a backstory as you're going to get for you know someone who is not actually the person that it turns out saved him from the jedi temple yeah uh totally it was great i i it was interesting because we got this information that we wanted to hear and then it opened up so many more questions, which I love. You know, I love when things like that happen. It's yeah. like, okay, now we know, yes, he was in the Jedi Temple. He was trained at some point. 
uh, and he somehow was, you know, carried off, escaped. Uh, you know, who was it that took him off? Who, what were the masters that trained him? We need to know more. And I'm excited to find out. I hope we do at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it kind of, I think this is something that, that a lot of longtime Star Wars fans appreciate uh, to find out that, you know, his ability to use the force did take several years of, of training. And, and despite the fact that he has apparently a very high M count, <laughs> uh, you know, that this is not something that just don't, you know, spawned in him without any effort. This was something that was taught. This is something that he practiced. Uh, certainly he probably has lost some of his skills, uh, having gone such a long time, um, basically being in hiding and, and it sounds like on his own, but yeah, it definitely does raise a lot of questions. I think a lot of us want to know answers to, I would love to know who saved him from the temple. I would love to know what masters trained him. Uh, but you know, we're hopeful at this point that Ahsoka is going to take on that job of training him. Uh, and after basically testing him and, and finding out that she really can't get him to express his powers, but he will do that for Mando, we end up in a situation where she then basically says that she cannot train him. Uh, and this goes back to your comment earlier, right? She can't train him because of the attachment he has to Mando and because of her memory of what happened to Anakin, uh, who had many of those same attachments. And I thought it was interesting, as you pointed out in that article uh, that you were discussing, that they say Ahsoka was the best of them, but she looks at Anakin as the person who was the best of them, uh, which kind of goes to her selflessness that she doesn't really see herself as this person to be held up, uh, uh, you know, as an example of what a Jedi should be. But she clearly, despite the fact that she has, she knows that Anakin is Darth Vader at this point, she she still thinks of him uh, and what he meant to her and what he meant to the Jedi. And, and that keeps her from wanting to train another full Jedi who may have attachments that lead to the dark side. It, it probably still, you know, gnaws at her. You know, what if I had stayed around? What if I, you know, had not run from the, the, the Jedi Temple, you know, and... Had I been there, could I have helped things, you know, or would I have made things worse? You know, who knows? I'm sure it's still gnawing at her. I also took the attachment thing and I I didn't take it from first watching or even second watching. Um, of course, I assumed the attachment was with the child, with Grogu. Uh, as far as him and his attachment he has made with Din, mm -hmm. with the Mandalorian. However, I also wonder if she, because she kind of gives a funny look to Din. And if she doesn't sense also an attachment with him to Grogu, to the child, yeah. and um, what would happen if they were separated in that regard too? What happens to Din? You know, I mean, there, there could be some ties on both sides there. I kind of, and I don't know if I was just reading too much into it. That's what I try and do. And I know that's what you try and do. <laughs> right. There was this, this funny little look when she was explaining it to him that maybe this is also something on his side as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would certainly say that's the case. He went directly against the rules of the guild uh, to go and rescue the child from Pershing and the client uh, back in season one and has been on the run ever since as a result. So, uh, you know, clearly there is a connection there. I think you could almost feel that connection right from that very first episode where we we met the child. And as you pointed out, we now have a name uh, provided by Ahsoka of Grogu, which I'm still struggling with. To me, I hear that name and I think Hut. Uh, <laughs> Grogu the Hut sounds like someone you would totally meet in the Star Wars universe. 
But, uh, you know, knowing that the other two members that were more familiar with other species were Yoda and Yaddle, I didn't expect a Y name, but, you know, I don't know. Grogu is just, it's going to take a little while to grow on me. I, I'm still calling him the child. But, you know, right from that first episode where Din reaches out his hand toward the child as the child is reaching out his hand toward Din, there seems to be like an immediate connection between the two of them. So I don't think that you're reading too much into that at all. Yeah, I mean, I just wondered if that, that played into also her decision to not train. One, I don't think that she necessarily feels like she's comfortable training necessarily because she did not complete. She was she's not a Jedi. She said it. I'm no Jedi. Right. Um, you know, does she feel comfortable training uh, Grogu at this point? I don't know. Um, but also, again, I, I think that she feels like those two need to be together, at least at this point. Um, you know, if you want to go and, and we'll get to it in a moment, you know, if you want to check more out and go more involved into it, fine. But I, I can't personally train him at that moment. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, even going back to the Mortis arc, I think the other thing that I that I should really point out from that arc that kind of still bears on Ahsoka is that she had a vision as part of that three series arc where she saw herself later in life and basically realized that if she did not leave the Jedi order, then she was at risk of falling to the dark side, which given her love for Anakin as, you know, a master and her attachment to him, uh, certainly could have been the case. Uh, she would have either had to have been killed or turned. So, you know, it, it's a situation where, I agree. I don't think that she feels like she has a right to train the child because he is very much still part of the Jedi Order uh, formally and she is not. I think we'll get into that a little bit more when we kind of get to her parting words to him. But for the purposes of, of continuing the discussion about the, the episode itself, uh, the two of them clearly align to uh, go and, and free this town of people that are being oppressed by the magistrate. And again, this whole sequence is right out of a samurai film. Uh, and I thought it was just masterfully done. Yeah, I thought somebody actually compared like a shot for shot of, and I don't, I'm, I'm sorry if the name escapes me right yeah. now, but I believe it was a Kurosawa film uh, that it, a lot of the scenes were almost shot for shot out of it. You know, it's kind of similar to what uh, George did originally in A New Hope when he did some shot for shot from uh, some 1941 uh, dogfights or, uh, excuse me, World War II dogfights, you know, essentially. Yep. So. Um, just kind of, you know, taking out of this, uh, you know, the, the, the already it's been nuanced throughout the series, but, you know, actually going in and watching some of these films and, and, you know, making this samurai Western ex very similar to something that has already been put out there. Right. And, you know, Ahsoka's initial attack on the town. So basically, you know, she, she makes her attack on the town. She carves up the guards, carves up the bell. And makes her way into the town to confront the Magistrate Lang and their guards, which included a couple of HK assassin droids, which I thought was a great callback to some of the Knights of the Old Republic. Um, these were a newer version, but those HK assassin droids are something that is a callback to some old Star Wars video games. But, you know, clearly this was very carefully planned out. They knew that they would never suspect, as they said, a Mandalorian and a Jedi or an ex-Jedi uh, working together. And so 
so Ahsoka comes in with that very noticeable or recognizable pauldron of Mando's with the uh, the mudhorn signet on it and tosses it down at the feet of the magistrate uh, and basically gets her to commit all her forces to chasing Ahsoka down. Uh, meanwhile, Mando comes in and basically gets all the, the villagers to get in their houses, get to safety, uh, so that they can kind of take out the, the forces of evil without any of the civilians being at risk. And it ends up in one of the, the few scenes in this particular film that really does go back to that gunfighter uh, type throwback for Star Wars uh, with the showdown between he and Lang. Well, I love the, and also I love the juxtaposition of because there, there's two showdowns going on at the same time. One very samurai, one very old school Western, and it's like, okay, we're just shouting at what this series is, right? Yeah. <laughs> Within this, because yes, we're a western sometimes. Yes, we're a samurai. Sometimes we're a heist film. Whatever you know. But this right. show, it was, it was, it was perfect juxtaposition of two different styles of showdown. I will say that uh, as kind of the uh, assassin droids and Lang and the and the other henchmen were chasing her around kind of the alleys of the town. She has one scene where she shows up behind a couple of these guys and ignites her lightsabers in a way that is just an absolute callback to what we see within uh, Star Wars Rebels. Uh, where she basically has the hilts pointing right at each other. And as she ignites them, as the blades are coming out, she moves her hands apart. So it just looks like one glowing white bar. And then she, you know, pulls it apart and she's got her two sabers. So I love that, uh, you know, visionary, the, the, the vision of that particular callback. Uh, it immediately triggered the scene uh, from Star Wars Rebels, where she does that same thing in, in one of her show, in her showdown against uh, Anakin slash Vader. This this episode was shot so beautifully. I mean, there are just so many great and interesting shots. Um, you, I'm just going to go back a little bit here to the shot of, like you said, you know, that this forest is quite burned down, but there is Ahsoka in amongst this green. It's like it was such an interesting thing yeah. that in this this what is basically this dead forest where Ahsoka is. There's just a life right there in that spot mm -hmm. and there were just so many things like that throughout it the way it was uh it, the cinematography of it and everything it was it was a beautifully done episode for sure yeah and actually that was uh, i'm glad you brought that up because that was one of the other callbacks to the mortis arc that um that really jumped out at me is the fact that essentially the way that this world of mortis was created was that during the day it was all lush and verdant and then at night when the darkness would come all the plants would die. Everything was dead and barren. And then the next day when, when the light came back, everything would, would come back. So, you know, Ahsoka now being the embodiment of the light and very much carrying the spirit of the daughter is, as you said, located in this, in this very barren area of this world. And yet she is surrounded by greenery, uh, in this little place where, where she has chosen to shelter. So, um, there's a great parallel between those two there as well. Yeah, I didn't pick that up, but that's yeah, you're exactly right. I remember that from the uh, the Mortis arc, and that is a, a perfect analogy right there yeah. for sure. So, uh, you know, the other as you were talking about, you know, we get the the showdown between Mandalorian and Lang, and at the same time, as you said, Ahsoka has made her way into the inner courtyard of this area where the magistrate is located. Uh, the magistrate's waiting for her with that staff of Beskar, and uh, we get both, as you said, the gunfight. 
and this the samurai duel going on in the inner courtyard and uh you know the whole time lang's keeping up this running conversation with the mandalorian who's gonna win is it gonna be my guy is it gonna be your guy you know and uh you know trying to distract him trying to find a chance to get the drop on him uh and of course you know we know mando he's not gonna be caught off guard by anything quite that innocuous yeah love the even little gun twirl at the end you know it just so western (laughs) oh good yeah i was surprised you know we we don't know much about this magistrate but certainly we know that anyone who's watched any of the clone wars any of rebels ahsoka is one of the preeminent fighters in the universe certainly with her lightsabers her her connection to the force uh she has taken on force users who are far more fearsome than this magistrate yet she ends up at one point in this fight having one of her lightsabers knocked out of her hand and into the koi pond i don't know what space koi look like um <laughs> uh, we can only imagine at this point but you know i was a little surprised that you could have this person who supposedly is not uh, a force wielder uh there's certainly nothing to indicate that she is but uh, she manages to get the better of Ahsoka for one brief moment in that fight. Yeah, it was uh, quite a battle, actually, between the two of them uh, with the Beskar spear and then the uh, the two lightsabers or what ended up being one lightsaber. As you said, the koi- I was looking at the Koi Pond. I'm like, is there fish in there? I'm yeah, I was too. <laughs> couldn't quite make them out. It looked like there might have been, but I couldn't quite make them out. But uh, yeah, it is interesting. She has to have some sort of backstory as well. And obviously, you know, the person she's tied with that we I'm sure you're about to get into. Mm-hmm. I know you were extremely excited. Oh, you can go ahead and drop it. I mean, certainly. Yeah. The, the, right after this, he's, you know, tell me where Thrawn is, you yeah. know, or essentially I'm paraphrasing. But uh, so, yeah, she being tied in with Grand Admiral Thrawn would make sense that he would, you know, if, yeah, at this point, um, he would, knowing the tactician that he is, he's going to have somebody who is pretty strong on his side heading up uh, some whatever grouping this is. And for whatever reason, they're there on this planet. Yeah, I mean, certainly... Uh, certainly Ahsoka knows something that has not been revealed to us yet. I don't think she necessarily is just asking that question cold. I mean, clearly she's got some information that, that the magistrate was in some way, shape or form tied to Grand Admiral Thrawn. Uh, we know that, you know, you and I have done episodes on both Ahsoka and Grand Admiral Thrawn in the past. I would encourage anyone who's not familiar with those characters to go back and, and listen to those at the very least. Certainly there's plenty of content you can watch within Rebels and uh, Clone Wars, etc. But, you know, that's going to take a lot of time. And uh, I think the rest of these episodes are going to unfold pretty quickly as we get into the holiday season. So, uh, you know, within just a few hours of, of listening to those podcasts, you should be pretty well caught up. But uh, Grand Admiral Thrawn, certainly one of the people who would still be considered a huge threat to the the new republic at this point um to anyone who survived from the jedi order uh with him being name dropped as we get a little bit later into this episode where ahsoka tells uh din that she still cannot train the child uh and that he needs to take the child to tython and put him on the seeing stone at the at the jedi temple there um and that if you know if it's meant to happen a jedi will come I think a lot of people would assume maybe Luke Skywalker, but if Thrawn is back in play, then we also know that Ezra Bridger, uh, who is uh, really uh, one of the the last 
trained Jedi at this point uh, from Star Wars Rebels could potentially be hopping around in the galaxy and could also be that person who arrives uh, on Tython to to take over the training of Grogu. So they're bringing a lot of things back into play on top of Moff Gideon, on top of all of these other pieces on the chessboard. And it's it's going to be really interesting to see what direction they go with those. Right. And, you know, where is Thrawn within this, you know, what's left of the Empire right now? Is he still involved in this? You know, is is Moff Gideon working for him or is this a completely different subset of what's going on? I, You know, it's there's a lot to be uncovered here, whether it be on this series or whether we eventually see something going forward, you know, whether there is a the search for Thrawn or the search, you know, whatever Ahsoka is doing, does, is this her lone appearance? Does she make another appearance here or there? Or is there some sort of spinoff series getting set to be released on us at some point in the future? It's, yeah. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff to unpack from this episode and a lot of stuff that, to, that leads us into the future of, well, the future past, wherever we are within the <laughs> Star Wars timeline uh, as we move forward. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting because they have so many major characters right now in play with Bo-Katan and Ahsoka and Thrawn and potentially Ezra Bridger. Uh, there's been talk of, you know, would they go so far as to bring a de-aged Mark Hamill back as Luke Skywalker? Um, you know, I wouldn't put them past it to, to have that all come to a head within a season finale. I don't think it's necessarily going to happen in season two. I think they see this going longer term than that but uh you know it's it they have a lot of pieces in play right now that not just are are great callbacks to things within star wars lore but um are really interesting characters that i think a lot of people who are not familiar with them at this point once they meet them are going to want to know more about them and um you know we'll we'll do our typical seems to happen every episode you know if you've not watched clone wars if you've not watched star wars rebels um these are characters that are mentioned exclusively and intensively in those series and they are highly developed characters they're very interesting and i think they're going to be a lot of fun to watch in a live action setting and i you know i mentioned it when we were going over the first three episodes of season two of the man it's one of the things that excites me so much about bringing these characters into the mandalorian is so many people now that we've seen on social media that were you know they were good star wars fans but yeah. they mostly focused on the films or whatever and they're like yeah you know that the animated series those are for kids it's not something i necessarily need to watch or whatever I, it doesn't really bring that much to the table are now finding out about these characters and diving into it and experiencing for themselves how rich and how deep these stories are within the clone wars within star wars rebels and how much more it brings uh you know so much more depth it brings to the your star wars fandom in general it may it's i know it excites you it totally excites me that, that these characters and, and, and it excites me every time i see someone mention how oh i just watched the clone wars for the first time or i just started watching rebels for the first time and how much they loved it because we've been <laughs> talking about it for a couple years now on your show so it's glad i'm just it just makes me happy to see it reach this point where everybody else is 
not that there were a lot of people out there that loved it, but now that it's reaching this broader audience that are, are falling in love with these series like we have. Yeah, I've had so many times where I've wished I could completely forget some aspect of Star Wars so that I could go back and rewatch it and experience it again for the first time because uh, it was so exciting and you know so thrilling to experience that the very first time. And I, I guess really, since we can't do that, the only way you get that these days is to experience it through the eyes of some of these other people who are finally discovering some of this stuff for themselves because they've fallen in love with these characters or, you know, just had their interest peaked by what they've seen within the Mandalorian. And then they go back and they're like, Oh my God, how did I not watch this before? Uh, mm -hmm. And it is exciting to see other people getting that excited about the content that's being put out. So um, yeah, I think that's uh, probably a great place to leave this. Uh, certainly, you know, we're, we're talking about the planet of Tython. That is something once again, uh, you know, possible planet that uh, has been argued by many as being the site of the first Jedi temple. So we'll see how that gets presented uh, in one of these upcoming episodes. But uh, again, they're just, they're tying in so much fun stuff from, from uh, not just stuff that's current canon, but stuff that had fallen out of canon and they're bringing it back in, which I always love to see so tom thank you so much for coming on to talk with me about this uh why don't you let everyone know where they can find you in the hyperion adventures podcast and the disney dishes blog which <laughs> again if you ever want to get instantly hungry uh check out the disney dishes blog tom is recreating dishes from uh disney and uh disney cruise line etc uh but yeah go ahead and let everyone know where they can find that Thank you. Uh, yeah, and, uh, always great to be here. Thanks for inviting me again to be uh, here in the Jedi Temple archives with you, Rob. So if you want to find our podcast, it's the Hyperion Adventures podcast. I do it with my wife, Michelle, and we mostly focus on Disney, but we do also talk Star Wars. We talk Marvel. We talk a lot about the parks, the cruise line. And if you want to check us out, uh, the best place to find us is on our own website, HyperionAdventuresPodcast.com. However, we're on pretty much every podcatcher out there. If, we, if you have one that we're not on please let us know and we will try and get ourselves on there uh, you can also follow us on social media we're on twitter at hyperion podcast facebook instagram and pinterest at hyperion adventures podcast we also have a youtube channel where we're mostly just doing videos of our episodes on a basis but you know it's a lot of fun to check that out anyway and if you want to find us there just do a search for hyperion adventures podcast and hit subscribe and you'll know when we have a new video and as far as the disney dishes blog yes we recreate a lot of uh dishes from around disney i've even recreated a, a dish or two from uh with inside uh batu inside black spire outpost at star wars galaxy's edge uh, but I also throw in a few of my own recipes that I think people will love as well. And you can find that by just doing a search for the Disney Dishes blog. We're at DisneyDishesBlog.com. Yeah, awesome. Uh, again, Tom always will send out photos of some of the stuff that he's making for the blog. And uh, like I said, I'm instantly hungry. And then I go look at what we have in the house and turn on the air fryer, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever works. Oh. Hey, you made pretty good what was that that bacon wrapped avocado the yeah, other day that worked out pretty well pretty so good. yeah that yeah pretty good Tom makes the dishes, I make the drinks. So if you want to find our podcast, you can certainly do so on jtapodcast.com. Uh, we'd love it if you'd tell a friend or family member who may enjoy Star Wars where to find us as well uh, and pass that along. Uh, if you want to reach out to us via email, you can do so at jtapodcast at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Twitter 
at JTA Podcast, as well as on Pinterest at that same address. And you can check out my wife and I, who also do a Disney podcast called the Hoopty Duo Disney Review Show. Uh, that is at hooptyduo.buzzsprout.com. And uh, you can reach us at hooptyduo at gmail.com if you want to reach out to us with an email on that. So uh, with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and wrap the show for today. Thank you guys so much for listening, and may the Force be with you. Mm-hmm.